0: Yeah, I am. Uh, and if you're real offended about that joke, don't you worry, I gave him the punchline. So, <laughs> we'll all take that with a grain of sand or grain of salt. And First and foremost, I want to thank the committee. I want to thank you so much for putting on this incredibly, incredible, wonderful roundup that I'm privileged to just be a part of. We know to do service in Alcoholics Anonymous, it takes a lot of sacrifice maybe a lot of inventory, we'll know if the inventory has been written, whether or not the amends have been made. (laughs) Yeah! Um, So I just, I wanna thank you. You all have been so kind and so hospitable and and so welcoming and you know, it's one of those things, despite how kind and how loving and how wonderful you all are, I didn't wanna be here. Now I'm not talking about tonight or this morning, it's early. Uh, I didn't wanna be here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I ended up in a series of church basements after what I was hoping was a whole bunch of oopsie doodles and whoopsie daisies. Uh, and I was having the coffee creamer by mistake. You know what I mean? I was hoping it was all my yeah buts and I was hoping it was all my andas, and I was hoping it was all those other things that were really what was wrong with me and I came with walls and buckets of denial. And I would do this thing that I'm hoping nobody would hear would do today and it's called judging the speaker. Not that anyone would ever, ever, ever do that. It's happening. Um, and so I would do that. And I would listen to somebody share, and I'd be like, oh, man, I'm way worse than that guy. There's no way this AA thing could possibly help me. And the next person that would share, I would listen, I would hear them talk, and, and I'd think, man, I'm not bad enough. I don't belong, and I thought alcoholism was a series of consequences that I couldn't understand and I didn't relate to. I thought it was DUIs. I didn't have a driver's license. I thought it was divorces. I couldn't convince him to marry me. (laughs) I thought it was homeless, well, and I experienced homelessness, but I thought it was losing houses, I thought it was losing things, And and I thought I had a lot of other stuff that was wrong with me. But there are two questions on page 44 out of our book Alcoholics Anonymous that made it as clear and as simple as it needed to me for this alcoholic. What happens when I try to stop drinking? And what happens once I start? And those two questions made it as simple as it needed to, needed to be for this alcoholic. See, I'm an alcoholic and I didn't know it. And I did not know the hopelessness of the dilemma that I was in. And to be an alcoholic is, in my experience, it's to be real abnormal. And you guys might be like, yeah, Paige, it's like 10.30 in the morning. We can tell you're abnormal. But no, I am an abnormal. Yeah, you get a clap on that. You know, woo! <laughs> uh, double clap. Uh, but I am abnormal. And, and what does that mean? So for me as an alcoholic, I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have one abnormal reaction to alcohol, I have two. And the first abnormal thing that happens to me once I take a drink of alcohol is this. I take a drink and... peace, Peace, ease, comfort. I'm able to sit and be okay in my own skin. To misquote part of our book, it's like a new world comes into view and I am okay. And if that was all that was abnormal, See a normal drinker. I don't know what happens to them when they take a drink, but they take a drink, and they don't get like a solution for life. They just like enjoy the hockey game. You know what I mean? Like I, like I don't. I don't know. Like oh, right. And so if that was all, if that was all that was wrong with me, I would be out there enjoying my new way of life, I would be out there enjoying my peace, my serenity, my ease, my comfort, I wouldn't be here with you today. But the problem is I also have another abnormal reaction to alcohol. And so I take that drink and I feel the effect of it and there's a little thing inside of me that tells me, more, yeah. And here's the thing, the more that I drink, the louder that more gets. Do you guys relate to that? Yeah. Uh oh. Uh oh. Does the German Hall in Medicine hat know they rented to a bunch of alcoholics? Like, it's not my job. Well, kind of a little bit is to qualify you, but we're doing pretty good so far. Yeah. Um, And so that was, that would happen to me. I would take a drink and the more that I drank, the more that I needed to drink. And there was that thing that would happen at the end of the night, end of the spree, end of the run. I needed that last drink more than I needed that first. And see, this is my experience as a result in drinking in that way. I crossed these lines in the sand. I became somebody I didn't, I didn't recognize. I became somebody who I could not look at myself in the mirror. I damaged the relationships that I had. And I hurt people in ways that I absolutely never wanted to hurt people. And I became someone absolutely unrecognizable. And I thought that it was possible that alcohol might have had something to do with it. And you might be like, oh boy, the morning speaker, she's real intuitive. Eh, took me a little while. And so, see, see, that's abnormal. A normal drinker, what they'll do is, is they'll go out, they'll, be, they'll maybe even be in a relationship because we're able to have one of those, and they'll be like, okay, sweetie, I'm going to go to the bar, and I will have one or two, I'll be home by nine, and then their plan comes to fruition. It happens, they have one or two, they're home by nine, Their pants are dry. They didn't bring anyone else with them. They didn't go missing for three weeks and come to in a hotel room. No? Yeah. Right? They just, they have a normal reaction to alcohol. And so for me, my reaction is abnormal. And so I would have this inkling that maybe, maybe alcohol was part of my problem. And I would say, that's it. I'm never going to drink again. And what I realized is that I also had an abnormal reaction to sobriety. I don't know about you, but there were people in my life that would say, Paige, if you stop drinking, you'll feel better. Anyone ever, anyone ever hear that? Yeah, so, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but it's uh, usually the people that love, like, love us the most, or at least me. It was the ones that loved me the most, like mom. Just like, oh, sweetie, if you stop drinking, you'll feel better. She was right. I feel better. I feel better. Yeah, we might might have some alcoholics, you guys. See, for me, I feel pain, better, sober. I feel depression, better, sober. I feel that anxiety. It's like somebody is stabbing my shoulder blades. I feel that better, sober. It's that depression where I can't get out of bed. My skin doesn't fit. It feels like there's a hole inside of my soul. It's like I'm a raw, exposed, nerve-ending, and for some ungodly reason, the wind is blowing, and I feel that better. And that is how I feel, sober. I feel hopeless. I feel depressed. I feel suicidal better. And again, if that was all that was wrong with me, you'd probably have another speaker, or I wouldn't be here. See, I also have another abnormal reaction to sobriety. It's not just that I can't face life, it is also that I have a thought. And that thought comes to me in my own voice. And it always sounds like a good idea. But the truth is, that thought is a lie. You let me know if you've had a thought like this when you're sober as we all are today. This time will be different. Yeah. What about nobody will ever know? Yeah. I'll go out for three drinks. I'll go out for three drink, three days. It's a little more reasonable. I'll come back to A on Monday. You know what I mean? I had this one where it's like, listen, I've, I've done so well, so well for three months. I think I got this thing now. I think it, I think I got it under control. Another one that I got, maybe it's just me. But I I, I had a little bit of self-awareness. I was aware that I was just absolutely miserable in being a real bee to everybody in my life. And I'll take one or two. I'll take the edge off. I'll be nicer to all of you. You're welcome. My relapse, it's a public service. By which I'm very sorry, I will be back around for the amends, which is definitely owed for the TV and the carpet and maybe the car, I'm so sorry. By the way, an amends is not a sorry. I'm just letting you know my contrition. I would also have an insane thought that would tell me. It would tell me I just gotta go real hard and get it out of my system and then have a real good surrender. It would tell me things like, you know, Paige, you're gonna kill yourself anyways, so why not get drunk? That's what mine looks like. And see, that was the thing, I was stuck in this hopeless dilemma where I could not drink successfully, because as soon as I take a drink, I cannot control the amount that I take, and I drink into consequences. I drink beyond lines in the sand, and I cannot control the amount that I take, but I can't stay sober. Because every time I try to stay sober, it gets so painful and so awful, and I have this lie, and I believe the lie, and I take another drink, but I can't drink because I can't control the amount that I take, but I can't stay sober, because it's so painful, it's so awful, and I get this thought that tells me I can take a drink, and I take a drink, and I am stuck in this hopeless position. And that's what it talks about in our book. And actually, I might just, if you don't mind, do you guys mind if I like bounce around the big book a little bit? Big book. Yeah, big book, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, one, there's this line, it's in page 25. It's the bottom of page 25. See, one of the things that the book Alcoholics Anonymous, at least for me, it hammers home the hopelessness of my dilemma. But I didn't think I was hopeless. I was hoping I wasn't hopeless. But only when I understand the reality of my hopelessness am I able to grab onto the hope that is really on offer for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Bottom of page 25, it says, if you're as seriously alcoholic as we were, I want you to know when I got here, there are people that identify as real alcoholics. When I got here, I was kind of like, I think I'm a potential alcoholic. It's the only time in my life I ever thought I had potential. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And what does it mean to be as seriously alcoholic as we were? And it's very simple. It's the exact same things I've been saying. When I drink, can I control the amount that I take every single time? And when I have said, that's it, I'm never going to drink again, has that had any effect in the long term? And the answer for me is no. And if that is the case, I am as seriously alcoholic as the first 100 are. And it says, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. Darn it! I was kind of hoping for one of those. That sounds lovely. I mean, there's this chapter, it's called Into Action, seems like a lot of work in there. I don't want to do that. There is no middle of the road solution. And it says we were in a position where life was becoming impossible. Was that my experience? And for me, that was. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was soaring on the wings of success. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had come to the end of myself. And everything that I had tried to put, and I'll be honest with you guys, I did not try everything. But everything that I tried to put between me and that first drink failed. And every time I would come to to sobriety, it was so painful and it was so awful that death seemed like a preferable alternative. I could not manage my life. I was in a position where life was becoming impossible and it turns out I had passed into a region from which there was no return through human aid because all of the human powers that I had tried were not sufficient. He wasn't enough to keep me sober. The love of family wasn't enough to keep me sober. And nothing wrong with therapy and counseling. It wasn't enough to keep me sober. I even went to church. It was not enough to keep me sober. I was beyond human aid. I was hopeless and I was helpless. We had but two alternatives, two. Kind of was hoping there's an option three. Just gonna, because the two, I don't know if you're aware, if you haven't read this, like, it's not great news. Like, there is good news, but, like, bottom 25, not good news. Top 25, some good news. We'll maybe go there for some help. Um, (laughs) But it says uh, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the better ends, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And that sounds like my experience. And the other to accept spiritual help. And those are my two options. And those for me as an alcoholic, see if I don't have alcoholism, I got other options, I can try other things, I could go down water slides. I was talking with Wilder about his water slide experience. Hi, got his attention. Um, And it's actually one of those things, like if I had a negative water slide experience, I might be a little hesitant to go down a water slide again, is all I'm saying. But, at the, but water slides don't do for me what alcohol does for me. Alcohol gives me that sense of peace, serenity, ease, and comfort. And so I've got two alternatives. So that, and that's really the reality of my situation. And what I learned and what I realized is if I do not choose to accept spiritual help, what that means is I've made a choice whether I like it or not. If I do not choose spiritual help, I have chosen an alcoholic death. I have chosen to go on to the bitter ends. I have chosen to try to blot out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best I could. And I hope there's an option C, but there isn't, at least for an alcoholic of my type. And so I come, and so my experience was, when I come to step one, my deep and profound step one experience was not that I would never drink again, my step one experience was that a relapse was inevitable and was imminent for an alcoholic of my type. I would drink again. I will relapse unless I have a spiritual experience, unless I have a spiritual awakening, unless I accept the spiritual hope that is on offer. And I wasn't jazzed about that. I don't know about you guys, but like I came to AA and I did that thing that I think we all do. Like I saw the steps on the wall and I'm like, mm, that one, that one, not that one, absolutely hard no to that, kind of that, some of that, no, right? And like, and I've already kind of, you know that thing where you kind of already decide what step you're on, haven't opened a book, just got here, I'm like, I'm on four. I just know this, I know I'm, go- I'm good. Mind you, I had problems with two, you know what I mean? Like some real two problems, right? And so what I need is a spiritual experience. What I need is a spiritual awakening or I'm going to die of this disease. And, and when I say I'm going to die of this disease, that absolutely can look like DUIs and, and car accidents and, and overdoses and, and drinking myself into dangerous situations, passing outside in winter, but it can also look like a miserable, miserable life and I, that's what i was living as well and i'm going to die if i don't dive in if i don't have this thing but the problem is i came to alcoholics anonymous and i i had some god issues i didn't like that word now i don't know about you but like i got here young and for some reason i was really attached to the idea of being cool it's funny cuz those who know me and who have met me over the weekend are like really you you're talking about birds you put a bug outside, like you? Yeah, yeah. never in my life have I been cool. Like, if, if you're wondering, you know, and sometimes you'll hear in the rooms it says play the tape to the end, and in our book, and actually on page 24, it tells me that is not possible, because what happens for me is I play the tape to the end, and I'm in a red sequin evening gown, those that know me never once in my life, I'm sitting on a piano, Right? There's a there's a chandelier and a candelabra. I've got one of those real long cigarette holders smoking a cigarette, and I got a glass of Chardonnay. I'm like, yes, I am cool. I am mysterious. I am sexy. I'm playing the tape to the end. That is a lie. What is the reality? The reality is I'm pissing my pants behind a dumpster, smoking crack with the dude I just met. You know. I'm glad some of you relate. It's also a problem because at this moment I just realized Sunday morning is the spiritual speaker. <laughs> we'll bring that back around. I love it. Woo! Yeah. And so that's the thing. I come here young and I'm attached to cool and bringing it back to spirituality. I see that second step. And I think I know what that second step is asking of me. And I hear you guys use that word God. Ooh. and I think I know what you mean when you use that word God. I don't have the courage to ask you though. I'm just gonna make an assumption and run with it, right? And so I had these barriers. And some of the barriers that I had were kinda like that. And, and here's what I did. I started by using the word higher power, because it asked me, I can choose my own conception of God, so I use the word higher power, because when I got sober, which was almost 13 years ago, so a while ago, that was kind of the cool world, like, you know, higher power, woo, I'm cool, I'm young, I'm hip, never, never, I do have hip pain, but I've never been hip, Uh, (laughs) never. Um, But I started to use the word higher power, because that's cool. And then I realized it's like two words and a whole lot of syllables. So I started to use the word God. I started to use the word God very simply out of convenience. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's cool about Alcoholics Anonymous? It can be convenient. And you know what's even cooler? It's it doesn't matter what I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. It matters what I do. And so I use that word God as I come to prayer. And I use that word God as I come to meditation. And I use that word God as I approach that fourth step. And that word God no longer means what I assume that you mean when you use that word. It now begins to mean what I have experienced. And so for me, one of the things is I did, I came, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with some I mean, for lack of a better word, I came with some trauma. I came with some pain. I came with some, if there is a God, why did these things happen? If there is a God, why did these things happen to me? I came with this, hey, if there is a God, why on God's green earth do I have this horrific disease called alcoholism? Why did, right? I came with the whys. Now, I can't answer your whys. I can't. I think that's probably a personal journey for you. But what I can do is I can answer what I found for my why. And so what I did is, you know who I put in column four, or in resentments, in step one, column one? God. Took God through the columns. Started to get some freedom. Started to share that with another person, that stuff that had happened to me, that stuff that I had done. Started to go out and make amends, clear away the damage. And I started to get some freedom. But I'll tell you the real answer the real answer of why did those things happen to me, the real answer of why I'm an alcoholic, it was answered when I started working with others. Because I am able to sit down with another human being and say, yes, I drank that way. Yes, I felt like that. Yes, I did that too. Yes, that happened to me. Yeah, I did that exact same thing. And here's how I got freedom. See, Alcoholics Anonymous has turned the most painful, shameful parts of my life into nothing less, nothing less than gifts and blessings that I can use to help another human being, to save them from a living death and a literal death, to be a small part of their miracle. Oh, man, I'm feeling like bouncing around the big book. You guys here with me for this? Yeah! Yeah, bounce around. So let's go to everyone's favorite chapter of the family afterward. I know, I know, you guys are expecting me to say two wives, am I right? <laughs> yeah, two wives, woo. All right. Now, I just, it's this line. And it talks about showing others who, su- who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, not mine, not me trying to fix, manage, and control, but in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The greatest possession. The key to life and happiness for others With it, you can avert death and misery for them. If you would have told me the most shameful things I ever did, that deep, dark secret that I wanted to die behind would be something that not only could I, but I would freely share in a room full of people with a sponsee. And I can watch them have that sense of, oh, I'm not alone. I can watch the shame melt from them. I can watch them begin to experience the nearness of their Creator. That loneliness vanished, those fifth-step promises. Man, that is powerful, and I did not realize what the power that was on offer here in Alcoholics Anonymous, because I was tripping over the second step. I was tripping over, and the bar is always far lower than I think it is. (laughs) The bar is actually about as low as I was when I was in the bar. (laughs) Real low. Real low. It's got to be wheelchair accessible, because, you know... (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so one of the things is I also misunderstood what was asked to be in the second step. This, the second step is just asking that I come with belief. Can I believe? Is it possible? Is it possible that just maybe there's a power greater than myself? That's step two, part one. Step two, part two. Is it possible? Is it possible that that power that I just kind of maybe a little bit believe in could relieve me of that insane thought that I have to take that first drink? Could it restore me to sanity? Could I have a spiritual experience? Could I have a spiritual awakening? And I would come to rooms like this, and I would see people who are happy and sober at the same time, even on weekends. And I believed All I had to believe was that the miracle that happened to you could happen for me. And it talks in our book about like, you know, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Miracles aren't things that happen by wholesale. And yet here in Alcoholics Anonymous, they are. They are, that's all I had to believe. And then I believed that maybe there could be a power and just maybe that power could relieve me of the insane thought that I have to take that first drink. And with that, I'm well on my way. And I come to that third step and it is an act of faith and I think, man, I don't know if I can have faith. I don't know if I have the capacity for faith. So I've got a third step proposition for anyone who might be unsure about whether or not they have faith. Now, I believe very strongly in AA Singleness of Purpose. This is a third step question, not a step one question. Anyone here ever taken a floor pill? It's a pill that you found? On the floor? If you found it in a car you're like extra spiritual, like super surrendered. Yeah so all I'm saying, all I'm saying is I made some decisions to turn my will and my life are in the care of a pillow I found on the floor. I have the capacity for faith. Now I know that none, none of you upstanding citizens would have ever ended up in the back of a police car. Uh, I'm just saying that ha- that has uh, repeatedly proven to be an example of where I might have made a decision that put me in that higher power's care. All I'm saying, and like here's the thing, you try to run, I mean, they're faster than I am. It's, so they do tend to prove to be a power greater than myself, but also there was not a single problem that I had There was not a pain that I had, a problem that I had, an obstacle that I did not think that could be overcome or eased or surmounted by the power of alcohol. Not once did I sell the power of alcohol short. Why would I do that with the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, the power of God that works in your lives? and just my work in mine. And so in the third step, what I'm doing is I'm making a decision, and that decision ultimately is to work the steps like my life depends on it. Because it does, because it does, yeah. Because it does with that intensity, with that velocity. And so for me, step one, and I have this metaphor, it's like being in Calgary. And in step one, I'm in Calgary, and if I stay in Calgary, I'm going to die. I can't say in Calgary, a geographic is not a solution. I'm just uh, offering that as a preface for this metaphor. Um, And step two is just about believing that Medicine Hat exists, that it's a place. Could you imagine how freaking rude it would be if I'm like, it's not Medicine Hat. Oh, whimsical, magical. I live here. No, no, it's not real. No, I have a house. We're having a convention, a roundup. It's happening, right? No, no, it's not real, right? Could you imagine? So all I need to do in step two is believe that Medicine Hat exists. And wouldn't you know, wouldn't you know there's a roadmap to get there? Yeah, it's through the steps, through the book. There's a roadmap in step three. You know what I'm doing? I'm deciding to go. That's it. I'm deciding to go to Medicine Hat. I'm not there yet. I've just decided. And so what I've got to do is I've got to launch on a course of rigorous action. I've got to pack. I've got to get Distance and Carna come pick me up. We might have to get McDonald's on the way. I don't know if that's why we're late. Might have been. Uh, We've gotta drive. I really wish I had looked up the roads and all the, you know, but we gotta go. And it's only by the time we drive into Medicine Hat that we are in Medicine Hat, so step three is just about deciding to go. It is a commitment to do the work that is required to get me from this hopeless place to that place of hope. That's it. And so one of the metaphors that we have in step three, it it really is uh, that I'm fired from the management position of my life. It says, that's it, Paige. We we had to quit playing God, it didn't work. And I don't know about you, but in step one, I realized that my life was unmanageable. I was the one that managed it. And if I had managed anything as poorly as I managed my life, I ought to be fired. Like if I managed a blockbuster, all I'm saying is that's real low stakes for success. But if I managed a blockbuster as poorly as I managed my life, I ought to be fired. And in step two, I'm given the prospect of a new employer, capital E, employer. And step three is signing the spiritual employment contract. I don't know why I thought I was cool. I really like that metaphor. Uh, And that's what I'm doing. I'm signing pen to paper on that contract. I have not gone to work yet. And here's the thing in that contract. It says God will provide everything that I need. Not want, that's very different everything that I need if I keep close to God and perform his work well. How does an alcoholic like me keep close to God? I work the steps like my life depends on it, because it does. I dive into a rigorous course of action. That is how I keep close to God. And what is God's work for an alcoholic of my type? I'm gonna go on a tangent. I should've had you count count tangents, Cara. was like, can I count things for your talk? Like swear words? or things as like maybe tangents and maybe just help me to reel it back in, right? Um, But what is God's work for an alcoholic like me? I believe it's to be of love and service, very specifically for God's alcoholics because I was created to be of love and service to them. And I I wasn't actually planning on talking too much about the whole wheelchair thing. but I got sick at about uh, 18 months into my sobriety. And I'll come back around and maybe talk about that, or I won't, and it'll be a mystery. Surprise! Um, But it was was after I got sick, I I was filled and riddled with self-pity and self-hatred. And I was going through this time in my life, and I am sure those of us who've been around here a while have gone through those times where we're going through death after death after death, and it was one one more funeral after one more funeral after one more funeral. And I didn't know what my life was going to be. And I did not know that that was going to be my life moving forward. But I knew certain things. I knew that my life wasn't going to plan. And I thought I knew it wasn't fair.
1: And there was one more funeral.
0: And I didn't want to go. I wanted to do that emotional turtle. Where he pulled the covers over our head. I just wanted to call it. And then God showed up. In a way that God so often shows up for an alcoholic of my type with a drunk who was asking for help. And he said, Paige, I need you to come to this service. I need you to be there for me. And because you taught me well, I said yes. And I remember, now this is in my like, first few years of sobriety. This was the, I was sitting in front of my house in my wheelchair waiting for him to come pick me up. And it was one of the first times that I could remember feeling that peace that ease, that serenity. And at that time in my sobriety, I could only feel that connectedness, that nearness of my Creator, when I was showing up and doing something for another human being, usually an alcoholic, and usually one that I didn't want to be doing it. You know? (laughs) And he came, and he picked me up, and it was not a pleasant service. It was hard. It was hard. It was parents having to bury their young son. And it was heartbreaking. And as I'm leaving the service, there's a woman, she was also in a wheelchair, she came up to me. And she said, I'm so glad you're here, because I don't feel so alone. And that is what God's will is for me. That is God's work for me. See, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm not super successful in a lot of ways. Like, I don't work, I'm on disability. I've I've had people be like, man, and I don't know what God's will is for me in terms of some of that big stuff. But in terms of the day-to-day stuff, which is the big stuff, how I do the little stuff is how I do everything. My job, my responsibility is nothing less than to be an expression of God's love in this world. And as an alcoholic, I am also called to be properly armed with facts about myself, to sit down with another alcoholic who does not know there is a way out, who does not know there is hope, and offer them this way of life that I was so freely given. Because the most powerful gift I could ever give someone is to know the God that I have found here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the God that I have found is so unconditionally loving and is full of so much grace. Oh, tangent again, Kara, you keeping track? That's too tangent. No, she's not. She doesn't have a, let the record show. She doesn't have a notebook or anything to count my tangents. Man, I got to get us to the fourth step at least. Oh, gosh, I'm doing atrocious for time. Anywho. I am keeping an eye on it. It's a loose eye. Uh, <laughs> very loose eye. Uh, Mindful of time. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what, what happened for me is, is um, where I started to really learn about God's unconditional love. Of course, it was the first time I did that fifth step, and I, I wasn't rejected, and that six and seven, and, and that seven-step prayer. Man, that seven-step prayer speaks to me so much of unconditional love. But where I really learned about God's unconditional love is when I started to receive the fifth steps of other alcoholics. And see, I'm I'm just a drunk and I work with just drunks, and in that time there's not a thing I haven't heard. And I mean that. And so I have these people and they come to me and they have that deep dark secret. They have that thing that carries all that shame, that thing they want to drink behind, that thing they want to die behind, and they share with me that deep, dark secret. And you know how I feel about them? It changes. Not in the way that I would have expected and definitely not in the way they would have expected. I love them more. I love them more. Not in spite of that deep, dark secret, almost because of that deep, dark secret, I love them more. I'm a piss in my pants, behind a dumpster, smoke and crack type of alcoholic. I am like a failed human being. I'm not doing better than God, you guys. The God that is on offer that I have found here in Alcoholics Anonymous is incredible. And you know, so another tangent, and then I'll bring it back three, (laughs) Um, is, you know, what I have found is the spiritual experience, the spiritual awakening. It's grace. It's all grace. And what that is, is it is an unearned gift. What I mean by that is I do not deserve to be happy and sober. Yes. I do not deserve to be happy and sober any less than anyone in this room or any more than anyone who is out there dying of this disease, it is a gift. I didn't earn it, I didn't become worthy of it, I didn't merit it. And then, do we got some big book nerds in the audience? Yeah, Yeah? the big book nerds that are like, well, actually, Paige, it says in the book that a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all? Yes, that price had to be paid. And it's only once I've paid that price of destruction, of self-centeredness, that I realize what I was giving away was that which was holding me back. It really is, and has been for me, this gift. And my life is spent on sharing it with others. But to go back to the fourth step in the very little time that I have left, and and actually, I got us a metaphor uh, that'll take us through. So here's the thing, I was fired in the third step, fired from the management position of my life. It's got some ways in which I can orientate myself to God. And, um, and so it's, you know, he is the father, is, we are his children, you know, he is the employer, he's the, a- he's the director, I'm the actor. One of my favorite is he is the principal, we are his agents. And what that actually means is an an agent, is somebody who is legally allowed to act on behalf of the principal. So what that means is when I show up to AA, to my family, to traffic, to the grocery store, I'm meant to be acting on behalf of God. Ooh, that might change how I show up to some things. (laughs) Um, And so that's what it actually means. But I like to pretend it means I'm an agent for God. Pew, pew, super agent page. Yeah, all right, super agent page, woo, woo. All right, next we launch. Yeah, there's gonna be a rocket. What's my cool new spiritual assignment? Oh, house cleaning. (laughs) Because that's what it is. And here's the thing, in this metaphor, and you don't have to jive this metaphor. If you're like, I hate this metaphor, it's stupid, that's totally okay. But I don't know about you, but for me, at the very center of my being, what I have is a spiritual house. And I want you to know, if you have a house like mine, the house is good. The house is incredible. It has been designed by the most amazing architect, the most incredible Frank Lloyd Wright house you could ever imagine. I only know that one architect, so I really (laughs) run that into the ground. (laughs) Now, and it's good, and it's wonderful. But if you're like me, I've got a bit of a problem. Turns out I'm a bit of a hoarder. (laughs) Like I, and I'm not saying you lovely people are spiritual hoarders. I'm saying I am a spiritual hoarder. And so despite the fact that the house is wonderful and good, I've got some stuff in my house. Again, I don't know about you, but I got these things. The resentments... Nobody here, I'm sure, has them. You can't relate even a little bit. just me. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Uh, And so for me, I've got these resentments. And these resentments, they're like newspapers that are decades old. And they're piled all the way from floor to ceiling. And as they are piled all the way from floor to ceiling, they block out the light. And I'm in this darkness. And then I don't know about you guys, just me. uh, I'm full of fear. And those fears are like those empty bottles and cans that are strewn all over the floor. I can't step or stand or even move without clanging and clanking and them sounding bigger and louder than they really are. And then I, again, just me, I'm the only one. um, I have this stuff called sex conduct. And for me, it's a little like the dead cats behind the freezer. I know they're there but I don't wanna have a look at them. It's also very important that I mention that no cats were harmed in the making of this metaphor. (laughs) It's only a metaphor, you guys. Uh, And so what do I do in that fourth step? I'm just getting that stuff into bags and boxes. It's a fact-finding, fact-facing proposition. I'm pulling those newspapers down. And wouldn't you know? See, I thought the newspaper said, you're the jerk, you're the jerk, you're the jerk. I have another look at it, turns out I was the jerk. It was a real surprise to me. And I put that into bags and into boxes, and as I do, that light begins to come in from the window. And see, one of the things, one of my most favorite metaphors in the book is God is light, because light is not what I see. Light is the way through which I see. And as a result of this course of action taken out of this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, everything that I see changes and yet nothing has changed. If you, if you are not sure whether that could be possibly true or not, take the actions of the steps and then ask, has my childhood gotten better? Has my family gotten better? Has the jerks on the road, have they started to drive a little better? Right? Has my boss gotten better? They have changed, and yet they haven't changed. I have changed. And so I now have that light, and it's in my house, and I can start to see these bottles and these cans, and I can see them for what they really are, and I can see how if I rely on that light, I can clean them up. And then I deal with the cats, and I can with the sane and sound ideal, so I never have to have that happen ever again. And in the fifth step, when I sit down with God and another human being, that is me getting all of that garbage and taking it out of the house. And see, in the fifth step, it says we admit it. And there's two types of admit it. The first is I need to tell you something. I stole your car, I slept with your husband, and I peed on your carpet. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. That never happened. <laughs> It was linoleum. (laughs) So that's that's one type of admitted. And the other type of admitted is what happens when you go to a concert or a sporting event, a hockey game or, or a football game. You get a ticket and on your ticket it says admit one. So another way to look at that fifth step is to say to let in God and another human being. And God's light comes into that house. And in six and seven, what it really is is I take all that garbage to the curb and I become willing, just willing, to ask for the cosmic garbage man to come and take it away. See, if you're struggling with the conception of God, you could use cosmic garbage man, one 800 spiritual God junk guy You know, it'll work. And that's the thing is I think... I don't know about you guys, but I, I come and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm gonna really exert some power over these defects of character. I'm gonna work real hard on that procrastination later. <laughs> yeah. I oh, let me tell you, I mean, oh, I'm gonna get that anger under control, you know? Or I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with that fear soon, you know? Like I th- no, turns out I don't know if you guys knew this. This was news to me. Defect removal. It's upper management. I was fired from upper management. And see, what I love about the seven-step prayer is it says, my creator. And if we look at that word creator, it means, it implies to be made and to be created with love. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, all of me, Good, like I, good and bad, right? All of me, and see what I think as I come to this thing. And the steps are a series of right. I'm achieving. I'm going to get my black belt in AA. That's not my experience. My experience is the steps are a series of surrenders of giving more and more of myself to the ultimate love that is God. I am pouring myself out to this power that, in step two, I didn't know, I didn't believe in, I thought was super lame. And now I'm beginning to grow in experience. And when I ask, I'm not asking for the defects that I think should be removed. I'm asking God to make the decision on that. And to remove not the ones that are standing in the way of what? My usefulness to you and my fellows. That is what I'm asked to do, to be of use, to be an expression of God's love in this world. And take away anything that hinders me from that role, that responsibility. That's my job to be effective and to grow in my understanding of God's will, to be of love and service. That's it. That's it. And the stuff that is in me that blocks me off from that, that's got to go. And so what I learn in step, in step 10 and even in step 11 in the evening review process, and, and I regularly do house cleanings. There's a number of reasons why I want to continue to keep that house clean. The first and foremost is when I got here, it was c- kind of a real mess. Like it was bad. I don't know about you, but like there was a smell, right? Like, oh, I don't wanna ever let my house get as bad as it did that day, ever. I also wanna make sure I keep my house clean because it says on page 20 that our our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend on our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. That I am called to lay down the simple kit of spiritual tools to show you how they worked with me. I have got to continue to have experience cleaning my house so then I come to you and help you clean yours. I know how to do it. I've seen that mess before. I have experience with it. That is one of the reasons I need to continue to keep that house clean. And the third reason that I found that I want to keep that house clean, as it turns out, I have a roommate. That's where God lives. That's not the only place God lives, but that's one of the places God lives. In fact, actually, to pick up at page 25, Who knew we were gonna come back to it? I planned it so well. Uh, It says the great fact is just this and nothing less. And here's the thing, when I go through the book with sponsees, what I wanna do is we wanna take statements and we wanna ask them as if they were a question. And I wanna do that with the allergy. Hey, do you experience that thing that once you start to drink, You can't control the amount you take and you need more. I want to ask that with the mental obsession. Hey, have you experienced where you were just like Jim and and suddenly you got drunk? Have you experienced picking up that first drink again? But I also want to do it with the promises. And I want to ask, is this my experience? The great fact is just this and nothing less. Not theory, not hope, not wish. fact that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. If you do not know what a spiritual experience is, here's a wonderful definition, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. Is that my experience? The central fact of our lives today, not theory, not hope, not wish, but fact is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts. And there's two ways to read that, into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous, but has also entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do for ourselves. Is that my experience? And I want you to know if you are here today and you're like, I don't know, I don't know if that's my experience. I want you to know that is okay. That is okay. Let us help you. In fact, our life depends on helping you. So please let us help you take the actions of these 12 steps to have a new experience. Oh man, it's a l- is it okay if I go a little over? Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. All right. No, I wanted to have a group conscious on that, because it's like 11.30 on the dot, and I'm like, oh man, I, I kind of wanted to wrap up on a, I felt called to wrap up on a story about a bird. Oh, we're going over for birds? Darn it! <laughs> and it's really a story of how uh, 10, 11, 12 have become absolutely vital in my life. And actually, Cara was like, hey, can you talk about emotional sobriety? I can real quick in my last, um, we're already over time. Because um, after I got sick, I was filled with self-pity. And I was, I was filled with poor me. And I was filled with I'm different. And I was filled with pain. And, and I, I don't want to minimize it. There was real pain. I, I went from being fully active and walking and reading to having to be in a wheelchair and learning how to read again. And what that means is I had to learn how to say anonymity in front of all you guys twice. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's some pain there. <laughs> um, and, and what I realized is that emotional sobriety is not top-tier AA. It is a minimum requirement for AA. And it was only when I got connected with some wonderful people who were doing steel on steel where I really began to take the disciplines of prayer, of meditation, of evening review seriously. And that is when God really began to do for me that which I could not do for myself. You know, for me, and this is just my experience, and and just my experience. That little voice in the back of my head that always said, if it's bad enough, You don't have to be here anymore. It was only, and I mean only, and of all the things I tried, and please, if you need outside help, get outside help. I'm just sharing my experience. Of all the things I tried, it was only a rigorous application of those steps, like my life depends on it because it does, that allowed me to not have that little voice in the back of my head. And I did not think that was ever possible. See, I'm always called not to sell the power of alcohol short. I'm always called not to, sh- to sell the power of God short. Sometimes you'll be like in a room and people are like, oh man, you can't have an experience like Bill or Fitz. I'm like, yes, yes, you can and I have. I need to continue to seek it. Just like I couldn't stay well on one drink, I cannot stay well on one spiritual awakening. I need to continue to seek it and to grow it. And, and so this is my story of a bird. And the bird is a northern flicker. It's a like, ground pecker, kind of looks like a woodpecker. It's this brown, gray bird. It's got some specks on it. It's not much to look at. But when it takes flight, and in our book it talks about another kind of flight that we have here in AA as the result of these steps. When this bird takes flight, it wings open up and it's this most incredible, beautiful, vibrant orange. It was always there the whole time. And it reminds me about what it's like to work with the sponsee and to see their light come on and to see the hope come on in their eyes. And so it was this time last year. And so kind of to, to, frame, to frame this story, what, what I'm reflecting upon is the line in our second step, God is everything or else he is nothing. That line. And so it was around this time last year, it was a beautiful autumn, and I had, a, I had a new sponsee I was working with who needed a new experience. And because it was so lovely, we were able to meet outside. And when I sit with my sponsees and we work out of this book, we always start with a prayer. And what would happen was the first few times we'd be saying a prayer, and we would hear the call of the northern flicker. And then after a while, eventually we'd see, we'd be writing or reading or writing if we were doing some inventory, and uh, we would see that bird. And it kind of just became a bit of a joke for us, like, ah, God's here, ah, ah, flicker's here, God's here, right? And it became a sign of God's presence. Now this is not magical thinking. I do not think the bird brings God into presence. What I think is that the awareness of the bird brings my presence into God. See, God's always here. Where do I find God now? Where is Utopia in the here and now? God is here with us today, now. And so we were doing this work and, you know, he was growing and having this incredible experience. And it was before he was about to go on, on what was gonna be almost a year long trip. And uh, we we're sitting in, in a parking lot, which is where I do some of my best 12 step work. Uh, and uh, we see this most incredible northern flicker and its wings are out and the light is just hitting it. And the orange is this most incredible golden orange, and he has this thought, he's like, we should look up if, like, the northern flicker has any, like, symbology. You know, like, if you look up an owl, it might mean knowledge or death. Like, we should, we should look that up. You know, we've been doing this for a little while, didn't think to do it. It's like, yeah. So he takes out his phone, and he goes to Google it. And what comes through is a call from a private number. And he looks at me, and I'm like, yeah, I answer it, it's okay. And he picks it up. And it was the police officer who had saved his life many years ago when he was in his act of alcoholism. And see, God is in that moment. And then I also want to share another story about a northern flicker. It was this past spring, um, and my uncle, uh, he, is, he had cancer. And uh, I was, uh, he was put into a care facility and he was taken to the hospital and I sat with him the nine days as he died. And when we, he got a, a an ev- eventually got a bit of a private room, and, and I'm sitting with him after we had sat through Emerge, and, and that, was, that was hard. You know, when we get to this room, and I'm sitting there, and uh, we're there probably 10, 15 minutes, and the room overlooks the, the mountains and the Glenmore Reservoir. What flies across is a northern flicker. And it reminds me to come back to God's presence. And it was not an easy passing. It was not a quiet passing. There are many, many incredibly difficult moments. It was not him sleeping and me holding his hand. And so there are times where it would be hours upon hours upon hours of inconsolable agony, pain that I had not ever experienced, that I had not ever seen. And there were nights where I would be woken every 20 minutes and I would have to get up and try to adjust his pillows, try to change his blankets, try to do these things which weren't enough. And in those moments of absolute darkness and absolute agony, I have had people say, well, how could you say God is there? And I know God is there. And where was God in some of those moments but in my heart? I joke with some of the convention committee that I'm not a morning person. I really don't do well without sleep. But every single time I was awoken by his screams and his cries of agony, I woke up with love in my heart. And I woke up with a deep and powerful desire to give him love and give him comfort. And there were times where he was confused and he thought people were poisoning his food and he would get mad at me and there were spiders on the wall. And I showed up with love a love that is not my own. And during that process, God showed up in the way God often does, with alcoholics needing help. And I was able to receive a number of tenth steps. And of course, I couldn't take it by phone. If you've ever sat with somebody dying, I couldn't leave the room because when he needed help, he needed help. And to, to have audio stimulation is to, to, to exacerbate a lot of the hallucinations and a lot of the stuff that was going on for him in that process. But I can respond to those 10 steps by text. And I tell you, a text 10 step is infinitely better than no 10 step. Doing it imperfectly is, is always better than not doing it, at least for this alcoholic. And it gave me peace and serenity to know that I could be of use. And I was able to show up and stay in contact with my sponsees. And that was the first time in probably about five years where I did not put pen to paper on evening review, because I didn't have my evening review. And yeah, I could have done it on my phone, but I, I, to be honest, I couldn't have. But I still prayed, and I still meditated, and God was there. And there was a moment of, of just horror. And I said this prayer and I felt that peace and that presence. And it got really bad and I was able to step, step away and make a ten-step call when it got really, really bad. And then when he passed, I was there and, um, you know, he passed uh, with a tear and I, I wiped the tear from his eye and he took his last breath. And I sat with him as they washed his body and I sat with them and as they took him out of the room. And I, you know, the nurses were like, oh, there's gonna be paperwork, there's no paperwork. So I was waiting in the room. And because too much stimulation is really hard on somebody in that dying process, we had closed the blinds. And I opened the blind, and I was just looking out the window, trying to collect myself. And what flies by was a northern flicker. And then my friend, you know, who uh, I did the 10-step with. She comes and she picks me up and we sit and and she's like, hey, do you need anything? Like, if it's weird, just ask for it. Do you need anything? And I'm like, do you happen to have unsalted peanuts? I want to feed birds. And she did. And and we were feeding some crows and magpies and, and I was talking with her and just sort of deconstructing the past nine days. And within arm's reach, a flicker flew by, as close as I could touch it. Again, it's not magical thinking. God is with me in my worst moments. And if you're wondering, God turns all of it to the good, just like on page 24, 124. See, I then got home and the next day I had a sponsee. Now, it was pre-booked. You know, I normally would have given myself a bit of a breather. I had a sponsee booked. And we said, you know what, let's just try it. If we can't do it, we can't do it. Let's just try it. And we sit down and she's like, Paige, I don't know how this is gonna go. Uh, My partner's uh, mother was just airlifted to the hospital. And she's in ICU and I don't know what to do. And of course we do some book work, we say some prayers and she's like, he's just waiting, I don't know what he needs. And I'm like, I've just been at the hospital nine days, I know what he needs, you know, I know what he needs. Let's get him this, let's get him that, let's get him that. And he can wait for his mother. And during the, the next few months after my uncle passed away, I went through a number of, of other losses and a lo- number of other griefs. And every single time I would go through, I was presented with an opportunity to turn that into to help someone. I walked with a sponsee as she went through her mother's passing, I've helped other sponsees through grief. Um, I had an ex that passed away and and, uh, probably a little over dramatically, I'm like the last man that ever truly loved me, I hear it, Um, but uh, I found out he had passed away, and then 30 minutes later, I'm sitting with a sponsee, and of course, we're in sex inventory, (laughs) of course we are, and it's one of those things, I don't know if I would be here, and I don't know if I would be okay if I did not see God working in all of that, And just something to share. When I got here, um, oh, and just very quickly, my life depends on helping you. My life depends on working with sponsees. It's not that gold star recovery, it's bare minimum for an alcoholic of my type, and it has been nothing less than a privilege. But I think what I'll end on, oh my gosh, I'm way over time. What I will end on super over time is uh, the last two days I, I woke up at the Holiday Inn Express and I was waiting for my friends to pick me up to come to this convention, to come to this roundup. And both mornings, this morning and, and yesterday morning, Holiday Express parking lot right by a freeway. What do I see? Both mornings and Northern flicker. God is here, God is with you, and I want to thank you for this opportunity to share.